again. Turning your Bibles to the third chapter of Galatians, if you have it with you. At about one o'clock on Thursday, I gave June the text and title of this sermon for the bulletin, and by about two o'clock or so, I had changed my mind. So I'm going to adjust it a little bit this morning, but that's my fault. It's not hers. She didn't even know that. So uh, we're going to work from 315 to 325 instead of all the way down to verse 29 this morning and let this be part one of the goal of God's promises. We'll dig into part two in the rest of chapter three and into chapter four next week. Last week we looked at the first two pieces of the argument Paul is making in 3.1 to 4.11 to prove his thesis that by faith alone in Jesus Christ, all those who believe are completely justified, made right with God, are completely forgiven, completely righteous, and are completely a part of God's people. He argued that in 3, 1 to 5 by showing that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Galatian believers proved his thesis was true. In 3, 6 to 14, that the testimony of Scripture proved that his thesis is true. And this morning from 3.15 to 3.25 and into chapter 4 next week, that the covenants God made with his people also prove that his thesis is true. This text gets to the heart, really, of the theological differences between Paul and his opponents in Galatia, the Judaizers. Paul gives us a distinctly Christian understanding of the old covenant and the law, which allows us to get a very clear and distinct understanding of the heart of God for sinners, for people like us. There's a reason that God came up with the design that He did. There are reasons that were made right with God by faith and not by works. And those are not just theological issues. They are profoundly relevant and personal issues. God designed salvation to be completely successful and completely sufficient for everyone and anyone who believes in Him. God loves sinners He desires to redeem us, and when He does, He won't then keep us at arm's length like He resents us like unwanted stepchildren. He invites us instead into His home, to His table, where He gives us the seat of honor that is reserved for firstborn sons. The goal of God's promises was and is to completely save all those who simply believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me if you're able as we read from Galatians chapter 3 and I'll just read through verse from 15 to 18. This is vintage Paul arguing for something. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham 
by a promise. Let's pray. Our Father, You and You alone are God. And You are a God who sees and loves and saves all those who come to You, no matter what we've done and no matter what we haven't. This morning together, Father, we throw ourselves therefore under Your mercy and ask that You would open our hearts to hear and understand and believe Your perfect Word concerning Your Son. Help us believe what Your Holy Spirit gave Paul to say to us about Your Son. Father, please overshadow me entirely that I might preach. And Father, I ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. It's important here that we realize that we need to respect Paul's effort here under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and be willing to do some work this morning. This text is deep. It's deep, but the deeper the mine in the Bible, the shinier the diamonds. All right? I love to dig like this. I hope that you do too. And if you don't, I hope I can convince you why you should love to dig when the Bible gets deep. He calls these believers brothers or brothers and sisters. Is the rendering their family even though they're Gentiles. He's calling them back to the gospel because he loves them. He cares for them. And he starts to explain more specifically this earth-shattering revelation from verses 6 to 14 that Father Abraham's actual descendants are all those of faith regardless of their ethnicity. The Old Testament Scripture, Paul says, in Genesis is described as foreseeing the fact, this fact, thousands of years ago when it proclaimed the gospel, this same gospel, to Abraham. What Paul wants or needs to establish now is the place in God's design of the law covenant with Israel then. What did that covenant mean? What was its purpose all along if the design was that those of faith were Abraham's actual descendants? Those of faith were the true people of God. And he says in verse 15, listen, not even man-made covenants are annulled or added to once they've been ratified. That's a statement about the covenant with Abraham. If man-made covenants normally, right, don't get annulled, what if God is the one making the covenant? God fulfills His promise. When He makes promises, He sees them through to the letter. And in verse 16, these promises, plural, the promises are plural here, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, not offsprings. And the point there is that the promises to Abraham were not being made to all his physical descendants, but to one of them. There was a specific offspring, singular. Again, right? We labor that because Paul labors it. There was a specific offspring upon whom these promises would be fulfilled. And Paul isn't going to mess with the Scripture to get it to say that. He's not going to play fast and loose with the text to get it to say that. He's going to reference Scripture to say that because that's what it's always said. And so he argues the implications of grammar. In Genesis 22:17, God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul says that is about Jesus. Offspring or seed is a collective noun that's only used in the singular in the Old Testament. The pronoun here is singular. You even see him uh, in Genesis use the word his. So that promise way back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head is referenced again and again throughout Genesis. God promises Abraham that this seed will be his offspring. Back in Genesis 17, kings will descend from his line. So later his great-grandson Judah is told the scepter will not depart from his family line. And later his descendant David is told that his seed will have an everlasting throne. And then in Matthew 1 and 1, we see this one who is the son of David and the son of Abraham showing up on the scene and his name is Jesus. He is the one, the true seed of Abraham, the one who receives all the promises, the one in whom all God's promises are. Yes, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, the one and only heir, the last Adam, the faithful David, the true Israel, which, by the way, is why his people share in his inheritance. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David. He is therefore the interpretive key that unlocks all of Scripture. Here's what Paul is saying. Look at this in verse 17. This is what I mean. I love it when the Holy Spirit inspires that level of detailed clarity. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The covenant with Israel did not change the terms of the covenant with Abraham so that now the offspring upon whom all the promises come are the ones who are Jewish by descent and obey the law. No. The covenant with Abraham that came 430 years before the covenant with Israel was not in any way, shape, or form changed or annulled by the covenant with Israel. God made the covenant with Abraham. If the covenant with Israel in any way meant that ethnicity or law-keeping would obtain the promise made to Abraham, it makes the covenant with Abraham null and void. That's the implications of such a thing. It changes all the terms, and it changes the recipient. The covenant with Israel had a place in the plan of God, but it was not the means by which the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. That's the revolutionary thing. We learn from Paul in Galatians. Paul read the Bible as a story. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. He's showing that God's plan had a historical sequence. Abraham, law, Messiah. The law showed up 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham and changes nothing about it. So the false teachers, what were they doing? They weren't reading the Bible as God had given it. They weren't reading it in order. They weren't reading it with a beginning, a middle, and an end. When we do that, we see, as Paul reveals here, that the law had a definite starting point. 430 years after the covenant with Abraham. And it had a definite 
ending point. The crucifixion of the Messiah, the seed, Jesus Christ. It was to be in effect after the promise to Abraham until, as he will reveal here, the Messiah, right? It has a box. The promise was given before the law and the addition of the law does not annul or change the promise. Paul is showing the Galatians how to read their Bibles correctly so that they don't miss the glorious gift of salvation by grace through faith alone. Whether or not we perceive that as we're meant to depends on reading the Bible correctly. If we read the Bible, as Paul is revealing, with Israel as the center and not Christ, we're reading it out of sequence. That makes no sense, according to Paul. When Paul says law, nomos, he's referring to the Mosaic covenant as a whole. That's his point. The law is bound up with the covenant. Exodus makes this clear. We have to read the Bible on its own terms as it's presented to us so we can't divide the law up into three parts to try to get around what Paul is saying here. That's what people generally do. Well, yes, the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law are ended, but the moral part of the law, that remains forever. Well, that's one way to get around the very clear implications of Paul here. First, you know, separate the law from the covenant. It's the first thing you'd have to do. And then arbitrarily divide it up into civil, ceremonial, and moral. You'll have to do that because the Bible doesn't do that. A Catholic priest named Thomas Aquinas systematized that whole idea in like the 13th century. That's where that comes from, right? And we Protestants still buy it. The problem with dividing the law into three parts to distinguish what is still applicable and what is ended is, of course, the Bible. The Bible would be the problem with that. The Bible presents the Old Covenant to us as a package deal, a unit. And the law cannot be separated from the covenant. It is the terms of that covenant. That's what the law is. Exodus 19 to 24, those chapters frame the book of the covenant from chapters 20 to 23. Chapter 19 is the background. Chapter 24 is the ceremony where the covenant is ratified. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 introduces the ten words of the covenant and 21, 1 and following introduces the rules of the covenant. The rules in chapter 21 to 23 are the applications of the 10 words of Exodus 20 to specific social situations. Chapters 20 through 23 are specific sections of one covenant that cannot be separated. There is the book of the covenant. We can't take the words as eternal, the first part, and then try to make the rules temporary, the second part, because both sections together in the Word of God as it is written constitute the one book of the covenant. The law is the stipulations of the covenant. They're inseparable. That's why we see as we go throughout the Old Testament that to break the law is to break the covenant. Right? Deuteronomy 17.2, 2 Kings 17.5, 18.12, Hosea 8.1. They are inseparable. And this law covenant that came 430 years after the promise to Abraham could not and was never intended to enable anyone to obtain the promise given to Abraham. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law... 
It no longer comes by promise. There's no mixing. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The inheritance, right, to which, or, or, um, which Paul has shown includes a right standing with God, the in time gift of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately the whole world, all nations, is obtained in Jesus Christ because of the promise to Abraham. It's not obtained through the law covenant. The covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Israel through Moses are of two entirely different natures. One is characterized by law. The other is characterized by promise. That's why Paul is talking this way. They operate for the people under them on completely different principles that do not mingle. When it comes to our standing before God, they're mutually exclusive. That's the point of these first four verses that is so important for us to get our minds around before Paul continues. Right? He's making the point that the covenant of promise with Abraham takes precedence over the later temporary covenant with Israel through Moses. That begs the question then, that begs a certain question that Paul now asks. Look at the first part of verse 19. Why then the law? Right? Why the law? What he's revealing here is so massive that it raises this question that Paul anticipates his opponents or those that don't understand asking him. Well, then why did God give the law in the first place? Right? What Paul has just revealed demands that question because now if that's true, then, then it makes the law look like, what was the point of the law then? Do we see the implications in Scripture? If it wasn't going to be the means by which the promise to Abraham was obtained, then what was the purpose of it? All right, look at the second part of 19. It was added, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring, until, right? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies implies more than one, but God is one. The law was given because of, or more specifically, as we see in Romans 5.20, to increase transgressions. And the only thing we have to do to see that that is true is study the history of Israel following the giving of the law. It did not result in a God-centered, orderly, law-abiding society. It produced exile because they broke it. And that's all they could do. The law killed Israel. You, you want to condemn a people, a nation? Put them under the Ten Commandments. Put them under the law. It will kill them. Stephen Dempster says that Sinai does something profoundly negative to Israel. For example, murmuring before the giving of the law was not judged, Exodus 17, 2 through 7, but is judged severely after the giving of the law, Numbers 11, 1 through 3. Pre-law Sabbath violations bring a reprimand, Exodus 16, 27 to 30. Post-law Sabbath violations bring death, Numbers 15, 32 to 36. Before the law, Israel succeeds against the Amalekites, Exodus 17, 8 through 16, but they fail miserably after the law. Numbers 14, 41 to 44. Paul's view of the law was unheard of in his time. This, this is new, right? It, it's, 
earth-shattering. It was, it was troubling then, it's troubling now. It's so radical that Judaizers believed the law did the exact opposite of what Paul said it did. They taught that the law gave life. They taught that the law covenant was forever. It was imperishable, immortal, changeless. But Paul proves, no, 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 it was never intended to be permanent. It has an until attached to it. It was temporary by divine design. That's why Paul keeps using that word until so much in Galatians. Here in verse 19, verse 23, verse 24, chapter 4, verse 2. It was in effect until the offspring on whom God had made the promise arrived. Since Jesus, the seed of Abraham, has arrived, the law covenant is over. It has served its purpose by proving that the only way the promise to Abraham can be obtained is through Christ. Because we are far too fallen, far too wicked to obtain the promise by obeying the law. That is why the law was given. So that God could keep the promise that it would only ever be obtained by faith in another. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the offspring, singular, on whom the promise would be fulfilled. The very fact in verse 20 that the law covenant required go-betweens to even be delivered, Moses and angels, proves it's inferior to the covenant with Abraham. God came to him directly. So does all this mean that the law is actually bad and it's working against the promises of God then? Did it backfire? Look at 21, the first part. Is the law then, you see what Paul is doing? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Now, you would think that by the way Paul has been talking here, the law is contrary to the promises of God. But shockingly, the answer to that question of whether or not it is, is certainly not. May it never be. Paul's use of the word then throughout chapter 3 shows how he thinks, how he argues. It's like when you see that word, he says, I know what it seems like. I might be saying, I know what you're thinking, but keep listening. Look at 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, if that was the purpose of giving the law, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who... Believe, nothing has ever changed in God's design. Right? If He had given the law to give life, then yes, righteousness, obtaining the promise, would be by the law, which would be contrary to the promises of God. The Scripture preached the Gospel to Abraham because it foresaw that God was going to justify sinners by faith. That's what Paul has already told us. If a different covenant then is later introduced that offered obtaining the promise by obedience or by ethnicity, that would be contrary to his promise. The law is not. Since that wasn't the purpose of the law at all, to enable somebody to obtain the promise, that old covenant, the old law covenant, is not contrary to the purposes of God or the promise of God. And by the way, do you notice the underwritten assumption here that we need to be given 
life. Right? That we hymns, that song we sang earlier, that that said it perfectly. Create faith. That's how it happens. We have to be given life. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead things don't create things. We're dead in trespasses and sins, beloved. We aren't gaining anything. We're completely dependent on God to rescue us. And what does Paul say? For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But in verse 22, the Scripture, the law here, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those, given to those who believe. Scripture here is law. It imprisoned everything under sin. Israel, all humanity, we find, couldn't not sin. I mean, how in the world can we be righteous and pure before a holy God in everything down to our core? Our thoughts, right? Our, our, just, just our thoughts, our actions, our words, our deeds have to all be from conception forward perfectly righteous in order for God to accept them as holy. Who can be holy before God? Who can be righteous? But it was precisely the law's undeniable, imprisoning work that paved the way for the promise by faith in Jesus Christ to be given to those who believe. God gave the law to do that. To magnify the impossibility that the promise he made to Abraham was ever going to be obtained by good people that do good works that come from the right pedigree. Which is why God made the promise to Abraham about his single offspring, Jesus. That is how all the nations in the world would be blessed. Not by the law. And that doesn't mean the law is opposed to God's promises as though God has enacted two contradictory things. It means the law has a certain place and function in that promise to prove our need for the blessing to come by promise, not by obedience, not by ethnicity. God has one plan. The different covenants in the Bible function differently but they all work together in a complementary way within that one plan, the one revealed to Abraham. I'm going to send my son to obtain all this and save everyone from every nation who believes in him. Right? There's continuity in the Bible. There's discontinuity in the Bible. And we can't flatten the Bible out. We have to see its different parts and respect them where they are. The covenants were given to reveal different truths about the promise to Abraham which is a recapitulation of the promise from Genesis 3, 15, that the seed would come that would crush the serpent's head. The law was not, its purpose was not to secure righteousness or inheritance or life. It serves the promise by showing Paul's thesis. The only way a human being can gain a right standing with God is through Christ crucified. He has to intervene. Human beings don't need heart surgery. Human beings need heart transplants. Nothing proves that more than the law. All the law does is magnify Jesus. 
These next verses are an extended answer to his question in verse 21. Is the law opposed to the promises? No. One of its primary purposes in verse 22 is to bring all humanity under its curse so its only hope will be Jesus. Then look at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul uses faith here to refer to this new era we're now in in redemptive history, the time when the promise is being fulfilled. To be under law guarantees that we are under sin. We're condemned. We can't live up to it. To be under faith, to believe in Christ and reject any claim of goodness in ourselves means we are forgiven, we are righteous, we are justified, we are accepted, we are a part of the people of God, period. It's not like, but there's this other really cool thing. No, 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 that's it. This whole letter is about being under faith and not under law. Two different ages. That's why Paul uses another word so much. Under. Verse 22, right here. Verse 23, back in verse 10. Verse 25, chapter 4, verse 2. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 18. He's trying to make a point. Look at 24 and 25. So then... Here are the implications of everything he said. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Period. Right? You see the danger you get into if you try to divide it up? Well, you're not under that part of the guardian, but you're still under this part of it. Nope. You're not under a guardian. Period. The law's function is to enslave us to our sinfulness and keep us in it so that we'll believe in Christ alone as our only hope for salvation. Context here doesn't teach that law is a guardian like it was a tutor or a teacher, but in the sense of keeping us from thinking we could ever obtain the inheritance by works and obedience or ethnicity. The law is guarding us from that. The word Paul uses for guardian, paedagogos, is not being used in an educational sense, even though that's how we use its derivative. We have the word pedagogue. That's not how Paul is using it. In Paul's time, that word was distinguished from the word teacher, which is didaskolos, right? That's a different word entirely. Because guardian in Paul's time had custodial functions, disciplinary functions. In Greco-Roman culture, that that, that word, when that was used, Pythagogos was a domestic slave within the household who was responsible for taking care of the children from infancy to like late adolescence. That's a babysitter. The guardian was clearly distinguished in Paul's thinking from the teacher. So the law was not like, like a, a schoolmaster of some kind lovingly teaching us and edging us towards Jesus. No, 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 that wasn't its function It was a guardian through its sheer imprisoning. Teachers don't imprison. Through its sheer imprisoning weight to keep us from ever thinking that we could ever become righteous enough to obtain God's promise by our works. That's what it was guarding us from. Paul says the law was our guardian, therefore, until Christ came, set time, in order that set function, 
we might be justified by faith. Not in order that you would keep from being so sinful until Jesus came. So that you could kind of, well, I've, I've done pretty well. I, I've, I've done so, so I, I just kind of get grandfathered in. No, God has no grandchildren. It's not the way it works. The law was meant to prove to us our inability to obtain the promise by showing us how unable we are to ever quit disobeying Him. The law is so comprehensive. It is so holy and so righteous and so good. None of Adam's race can follow it perfectly and completely. So we need a new Adam that lets us climb on his back or we're dead. Babysitter, again, that's the best term, really, technically, since Paul clearly wants to point to the fact that the law covenant was temporary. We weren't going to be under it forever. And for the Galatians, for the Galatians, even though the parents are home, so to speak, even though Christ has come, the false teachers, the babysitters, they won't leave the house. That's why Paul wrote Galatians, to kick out the babysitter. Christ is home. You can leave now. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Isn't that interesting? Right? Now that faith has come, now that we live in this era, we're no longer under a guardian. Now, you understand, we normally think, well, if you, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you keep people from going off the rails? The guardian. No, no, no. You don't need him anymore. Right? Jesus has done it. Just believe in him. Oh, okay. no, no, no. That's it. That's it. It's only scary if you think Jesus is not capable of keeping his children safe and you need the babysitter to stick around. That's what we're saying. That's what's at stake here. Is Jesus sufficient? That's what's at stake in the church. That's, in, that, that, that's what's at stake in how we think we grow. That's what's at stake. Is Jesus sufficient or do we need the babysitter to stick around. Right, we're no longer under a guardian, not because the law was bad, it came from God, but because it has served its purpose in leading us to, showing us how desperately we need faith in Christ. It was never meant to guide our lives. It kills us. It's meant to expose our depravity. So many people think they're not that bad. Not that bad. If, if you've broken one iota of this law, you are eternally condemned if you are not rescued. Not because God is super grouchy, but because God is super holy. Where salvation for sins is provided, there is no longer any need to get people to question whether or not they've been accepted by God by how well they follow the law. No, that's evil. That's what it is. That's what it is. Now that we know it's by faith, we no longer need a guardian to keep reminding us. As Martin Luther says, the principal point, therefore, of the law in true Christian theology is to make people not better but worse. That is to say... 
it shows them their sin so that they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek comfort and so come to that blessed seed, Christ. The goal of all this coming by promise was so that you and I would believe in Jesus Christ. Do you ever get tired of failing to live up to God's standards? Right, they're everywhere. It's very clear what's required of us. Do you ever get tired of trying to live up to the standards maybe that we put on ourselves? That just we just decide to put on ourselves, imposed on us, by us? There's that. And there's the standards pushed on us by the media, by virtue signaling social media, by peers, by co-workers, by culture, by other Christians, just this constant pressure that you need to be better and do better and you aren't good enough and you aren't righteous enough and you aren't committed enough and you aren't disciplined enough. You know what that is? It's law. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's doing its job if we'll be honest with it. It's proving that we need a Savior. And beloved, listen to me. Jesus Christ has come. You have a Savior. Go to Him. Run to Him. It's over. Stop fighting for what is won. Stop it. It's time to kick the babysitter out of the house. He's no longer necessary. God did not create this world and send His Son to watch us all try our best to win our way back to Him after we sinned against Him in the garden, to watch us sweat and work and laugh at us, and then so that at the end of all things, He could basically just reward effort, because that's the best we could offer. How little must God be that we think He'll take my sweat? Your sweat? What is our sweat worth to God? It's sweat! just so he could bless the people that end up doing enough good to outweigh their bad, if a person like that exists. Maybe they do, I don't know. doesn't matter. God isn't a condescending sheriff. He's a Savior. It's what the Bible keeps revealing. Oh my gosh, He saves. He's merciful. His arm is still stretched out. And He's God. And His plan for creation reveals that when this God knew that we would fall and knew we would be so corrupted by it and twisted and cursed and wicked and selfish that we would never be able to do enough good or shun enough bad to earn His favor. He didn't destroy us. He made a promise to us in Christ. And because we're so lost and dead in our sins that we would not only be wicked but self-deluded enough to believe that we could earn His favor, He sent the law to shine such a light on our wickedness and inability that we wouldn't be able to deny our condition. This God wanted to wake us up. He wanted to bring us back. And so He enacted a plan that He knew would do it. There's not a threefold division in the law, but there is a threefold 
problem in the law. People can't keep it. It doesn't give the righteousness it demands. And it's part of an old age where there is only death and only condemnation. So this morning, if you feel its weight pressing down on you, and maybe you have for a long time, saved or unsaved, I can't meet that standard. I can't do this. I can't hold on. I can't keep believing. I can't always do the right thing. I don't always pray. I don't always read my Bible. Right? We're not excusing it. We're shining a light on it. Exactly. Right. And we've made the whole goal do better at that. No, no, no. Believe in Christ. Then, you know what? By the way, you want to read the Bible... Because it's Him. That's what changes. Like you, you aren't trying to stay on the clock. You're enjoying the relationship. Everything changes. I can't love my neighbor as myself. Please. Please. Let your neighbor mow too far. Let your neighbor not mow. I mean, like, that's all it takes. Like, I know it is funny. I mean, but I mean, that's all it takes. The person, this is, this might feel like a reach. The person that cuts you off in traffic, okay. But what if they're on their last leg? What if they've got to get somewhere? What if a kid is crying out, come get me? I don't know. But do you think we give them any quarter? Heck no. No quarter. No mercy. I can't love my neighbor as myself. The, the assumption in, from Jesus is that you love yourself. That's hilarious. I need to love myself more. No, you love yourself too much. Stop it. Look, at, I mean, I can't love my neighbor as myself, let alone love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. But like, We really think like our best effort is the accomplishment of that. That what salvation is, is God saying, you know what, I know you didn't do it, but I'm going to let you in any way. No, God doesn't change. He requires absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. No ifs, ands, or buts. Do you realize then how indescribably, immeasurably necessary Jesus is? If that's how you feel this morning, you feel the weight of it pushing down on you, rejoice. God is on your trail. The Holy Spirit is calling you, convicting you, to awaken you to come to Him. The law is holy and righteous and good, so it does precisely what God gave it to do. Crushes us so that Jesus might save us. God is the only being in the cosmos that knows you completely, exhaustively, and yet loves you totally. He's the only one. Most people love us because it, they don't know us. You know? That, I mean, I mean that's, that's part of what marriage is. I didn't know you were like that. All right? Sometimes. Not all the time. My poor wife, right? <laughs> no, God knows... Everything and loves infinitely. We don't even know what we're wrestling with. What brought us in this place?
what holds us together. Come to Him. He's not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. And He's the only one. He's the only one. Repent of all your sins. Lay down all your rebellion. All your wickedness. Lay down your rebellion of trying to please Him with good works. That's also rebellion. That's contrary to the promise of God. Call out to His Son. Call out to the seed of Abraham this morning. Cry out to Jesus. That was the goal of God's promise. To save all those who believe in His Son. So that's all there is left to do. Yep, that's all there is left to do. Just do it. He forgives all of our sin. He gives us all His righteousness. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank You for this Word. God, I thank You for it with everything that I am. Lord, I pray that now You would move as only You can to create faith where there's only death, to create peace where there's only fear. Have Your way. Prepare our hearts for the table this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll be here. I'll be down front before we take the Lord's Supper. If you need to come and pray about anything, if you would like to join our church, if you would like to be baptized, you're welcome to come. I'll be here.
seated. We'll take the Lord's Supper together in just one moment. Two things I wanted to say. This is Anthony Hope. Uh, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ desires to follow him in baptism. So we'll do that very soon. We'll get that scheduled and I'll get back to you, okay? okay. All right, you make sure you come after if you have a moment. Say hello to him. Give him a hug if that's all right. All right, and then you can go ahead and be seated, buddy. Thank you. And then secondly, uh, Christy Hoskins just wanted me to share with you all. She was afraid she'd choke up too much if she said it, but she uh, wanted me to share with you how thankful she is uh, for how God has taken care of her over the last three and a half years, his provision, his presence in your life, uh, keeping his promise to never leave you, never forsake you. And so uh, you, you've seen him come through and be faithful and be kind to you in so many ways, and she just wanted to express that publicly. And so, Christy, thank you so much for that. And All right, beloved, the deacons will come and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.